Again, good morning. It's good to see everybody. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 15. If you're new with us, welcome. It's good to see you this morning. We are working our way through John's Gospel here at Calvary on Sunday morning, just so you know. And we always do our studies verse by verse. That's the way we always do it. And so one good thing about that is you'll know where we are next week, so you can read ahead. But uh, this morning, in our verse-by-verse study of John's Gospel, we have entered into chapter 15, where we have uh, kind of camped on the first eight verses, if you will, to do a series we're calling The Vine and the Branches. Now, just to get a little flavor of this, let's read a few verses out of John 15, uh, verse 1. Where Jesus said, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Verse 4, abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. Now, as we have been saying here in John 15, we have one of the classic passages in the New Testament on the purpose and importance of fruit-bearing in the Christian life. And in this section, Jesus uses one of his many illustrations, uh, always taken from something very familiar to his audience. They were uh, lived in an agrarian society, so agriculture was a big theme, and many of the illustrations he used to drive home a principle. And so here he's taking something from agriculture and in particular uh, the cultivation and care of grapevines to communicate what many believe, myself included, is one of the most, if not the most important lessons he ever taught on the essential relationship between himself and his disciples. And since the whole goal of agriculture is to bear fruit, something the disciples knew only too well. He uses this illustration to drive home the importance of bearing fruit in our relationship with him. As we have been saying, and he will say himself shortly in this section, fruit bearing is such an important part of the Christian life that Jesus goes as far as to say that the only way we know if a person is truly one of his disciples, is truly connected to him and born again, is that they bear fruit. Without it, as we're going to see, uh, nobody can claim to be one of his disciples. That fruit is the issue. It's the whole issue of agriculture. It's the whole issue of the Christian life. This is the point of the message he gave. Yes, to teach us how to bear fruit, uh, but also to demonstrate that those who do not bear fruit, even though they seem to be connected to Christ, we talked about Judas branches a few weeks ago, uh, those who are superficially attached to Christ come to church, uh, maybe grew up in the church, so at the Sunday school, their whole life of one is whatever it might be, um, but they have never really given their heart to Christ. They've never really entered into a vital, living, spirit-filled, transforming relationship with Him. Uh, and that can change today. If you think, maybe that's me, praise God. Thank you for honestly examining yourself. The Bible says that's important that we do that before you leave the building. Come up and pray after with us. We'll pray with you to receive Christ. And you'll go from a Judas branch, one who is superficially attached but not really saved, to a Jesus branch, one who is genuine and uh, has eternal life. 
But guys, when we as Christians think of spiritual fruit, again, that's the whole point of this passage. When we as Christians think of spiritual fruit, I think we reflexively turn to Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. I'll read it to you. You know it. Where Paul said, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Let me ask all of you an important question. As you read that list, right? Where is humility in that list? Why isn't humility listed among the fruits of the Spirit? I mean, I can make a pretty persuasive argument that humility is at least as important as any of the fruits that Paul listed in Galatians 5, 22 and 3, and probably more so. So where is it? Where is it? When Jesus walked on the earth, he bore all the fruits of the Spirit in his life and ministry. We know that. And yet humility came before his incarnation. It came before he came to the earth and took on the body of a human being. In Philippians 2, you don't have to turn to it, you also know this. Let me read it to you the NLT 2nd edition. Because Paul talks about this, Philippians 2, starting with verse 5. He said, you must have the same attitude, same mindset that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges in heaven. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself further in obedience to God the Father and died a criminal's death on the cross. So Paul is telling us that humility predated Christ's incarnation. And not only was it the motivation for him to come down and die for us when he became a man, he walked in that humility his entire life as well. Yeah, he manifested the fruits of the Spirit, that's true. But it was the humility that caused him to set aside his glory in heaven, come down, become lowly, took on the body of a human being, born in poverty, lived in hardship. Uh, three and a half years, he went around doing good, destroying the works of the devil, and then eventually going to the cross to die for us, all because of humility, the Bible tells us. So why then, again, didn't Paul list humility among the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5, 22 and 23? Well, before we answer that question, let me define for you what true humility is. I mean, if we don't know what true humility is, there's no point in going any farther, right? It's a pretty important subject. What is true humility? Well, let me put it this way. True humility isn't, isn't going around putting yourself down. Now, I say that because over the course of 40 years of ministry, I've met people who think that humility is, uh, you know, being humble means that you go around putting yourself down all the time. You know, I'm nothing, I'm nobody, I'm a worthless worm. And I think that's really being humble. Folks, oftentimes, that is simply pride masquerading as humility. I think it was Shakespeare who said, you protest, protesteth too much. Jesus said, learn from me. I am meek and lowly in heart. Jesus was the epitome 
of humility. But he certainly wasn't a worthless worm. And he certainly didn't go around putting himself down to everyone he came in contact with. Again, true biblical humility is not self-loathing. It's not beating yourself up all the time. Humility also is not low self-esteem. True humility is not low self-esteem. In fact, genuine humility doesn't focus on self at all. It doesn't put self down. It doesn't raise self up. True humility simply ignores self altogether while it focuses on others. Humility has both a vertical and a horizontal dimension to it. Vertical humility. Humility toward God in our relationship with Him. Vertical humility is simply the quality that understands I am nothing and I can do nothing apart from God. Now, I'm not saying that we think we're a worthless worm. God loves us. I, I talked to a missionary one time who's, uh, was, whose brother was a Calvary pastor. And um, he would always use this statement to, to teach how we are nothing. And it was, after a while, it was really grating on his congregation. We are nothing but vomitous pus sacks. That was how he put it. Sorry, it's almost lunchtime, but that's disgusting. I mean, you know. I, true humility towards God is simply acknowledging, Lord, I'm nothing in and of myself. I have no strength. I can do nothing apart from you. Jesus would hit this hard in verse 5, okay? Apart from me, you can do what? No thing. Nothing, Okay. This causes me, when I realize that I can do nothing apart from God, I am totally dependent upon Him for everything in my life. When I come to that realization, and folks, sometimes it takes a long time for us to come to that realization, because we're Americans. It's in our DNA to be self-reliant, right? Oh, maybe God helped me once in a while, but I do most of it myself. No, When you have that kind of an attitude that I'm dependent on God for everything, my model then becomes when I'm weak, then I'm strong. This is a truth that takes humility to accept, by the way. Okay, think about that. I can't even accept that premise unless I'm exercising humility. But without the humility, pride takes over. Pride takes root in my heart, and we become self-reliant instead of God-dependent. And that is a problem in the body of Christ. Americans, yeah, we're self-reliant. We, we had to grow out of that. We got saved. Because for all the years before we got saved, we were in control. We looked to ourselves for everything we needed. We were self-dependent, self-reliant. You don't just come into the Christian life and turn that off like a switch. Well, maybe some folks do because God gives them a lot of grace to do it. But a lot of times it takes a time to grow out of that mindset. I've said it before. Let me say it again. The Christian life is not hard to understand. It's, I'm not saying it's easy to live. I'm just saying it's not hard to understand. What it's all about is re relinquishing control to God. Turning everything over to Him. It's not 
bringing God over, I've heard some people say, Jesus is my co-pilot. That's your problem. <laughs> Jesus doesn't want to be your co-pilot. He wants to be in the driver's seat, driving the ship. Oh, but can I be his co-pilot? No, get in the trunk. <laughs> and just go along for the ride. He doesn't want your help. Oh, Lord, should we turn? No, it's just let him drive. Let him lead. If we manifest a self-reliant attitude and not a God-dependent one, the result will be God will put us on a shelf and he'll stop using us for the work of building his kingdom on earth. All right, that's the vertical humility, our relationship with God. What about a horizontal humility? Well, that's our relationship with our fellow man, okay? People we come in contact with on a daily basis. When we talk about horizontal humility, it simply says to those we come in contact with and minister to, listen, you are more important to me than I am. It's not to say I'm not important. I have needs. I have to eat. I have to, you know, but you are more important to me than I am. Now, isn't that exactly what Paul the Apostle commanded believers in Philippians 2 verse 3 when he said, let nothing be done through fault, through selfish ambition or conceit but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself now, now at this point you might be thinking to yourself pastor wh where are you going with this i thought we were doing a series vine and branches right i thought this was all about us bearing fruit you said the father desires us to bear fruit that's how he's glorified so you know where are you where are you always you're on this 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 detour you know i I know, sometimes it seems like a detour. I'm really only going around the block to get next door. I, I have a destination. Sometimes it takes a little time getting there. But I know some of you are thinking, yourself, we're talking about fruit and it's humility, and what, where's this all going? Let me just say this. The teaching of humility is not a separate point. It's not even a side point. Folks, it's the main point. It is the main point. So then why didn't Paul list humility in the list of the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5? The answer is because humility isn't a fruit. Humility isn't a fruit. Listen. It is the soil from which every other spiritual fruit grows in the garden of our heart. Let me say it again. The reason that Paul didn't include humility wasn't because it wasn't important. It didn't make the cut in Galatians 5, 22 and 3. Because Paul the Apostle knew, and we can piece this together from other parts of the New Testament, that humility really wasn't a fruit. It was really the soil from which every other fruit of the Spirit grows in the garden of our hearts. Now in Galatians 5, 22, when Paul listed the fruit of the Holy Spirit, what was the first one that led the list? The fruit of the Spirit is love. Love. Some commentators define that as the only fruit of the Spirit. And the others that come after it really are those that come out of that fruit. Love. I'll let you wrestle with that on your own. Because they say, well, he didn't say the fruits of the Spirit. Sometimes I do that. He said the fruit of the Spirit. So... The first one, love, that's the fruit of the Spirit. And the rest flow out of that. Okay, fine. I think I, yeah, all right. 
But uh, when he said the fruit of the Spirit is love, the word is agape. Agape love. It's the, it's the love of God. It's a supernatural love that we can't manufacture. It's not of us. It's not in our fallen nature uh, to bear that kind of love. But Romans 5, 5 tells us when we accept Christ, the Holy Spirit moves in and pours God's love into our hearts. We have it there. We can draw from it. We don't always do that, but we can. It's there. It's available if we want to draw from it. Now, you remember that John 13 through really 17 really go together. Together they uh, are really the, the, the farewell address that Jesus gave to his disciples before the cross. So, you know, even though it started in the upper room, at one point, end of chapter 14, they left the upper room, started walking through the streets of Jerusalem. Just before they left the city, they stopped at the Golden Gates where the car grape carvings were in the light of the full moon. I believe that's where he stopped to give this, this, this little talk, his final talk. Then, but then they moved uh, across the Kidron Valley, up the Mount of Olives, and he finishes this discourse really uh, for our benefit in chapter 17 when he prays this high priestly, priestly prayer to his father. We'll study all of that. But it's, it's kind of all one unfolding message, if you will. And so what started off earlier in the evening in chapter 13 as they were observing the Passover together in the upper room. You remember at that time, Jesus gave to them and to all of his disciples a new commandment for the new covenant, okay? In John 13, verses 34 and 5, he said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you love also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And again, the word is agape, God's love. Now, let me just stop for the sake of the new, new folks, as we've talked about this before. I won't belabor it. But let me just stop and say that the new commandment of the new covenant that Jesus gave to his disciples wasn't simply to love folks. And there was nothing new about that. In the Old Testament, I mean, the Old Testament is, is full of commandments and exhortations to love others. Leviticus 19, 18, just one example. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The word new does not mean new in time like it was never before this. It doesn't mean that. Since God again commanded his people to love others in the Old Testament before Jesus ever was incarnated on the earth. This Greek word means new in experience, something fresh. Now in the Old Testament, God had commanded his people to love others as they loved themselves. What makes this command new is that Jesus commanded his disciples to love one another. Listen, as I have loved you, he said. How did Jesus love them? Well, how did Jesus love any of us? By going to the cross and dying for us. That's how he wants us to love others. By dying for them. Not literally, of course. Figuratively. Dying to self to put them above ourselves, esteeming them more important than ourselves. That's what's new about this command to love under the new covenant. Again, the old covenant is filled with commandments and exhortations to love people. But Jesus here makes everything new when he says, love one another as I have loved you, or in other words, love others more than or above 
yourselves. Again, Philippians 2, 3. In fact, Jesus went on to say in John 13, that's how people are going to know you belong to me. Okay? Not because you carry a 50-pound Scofield reference Bible under your arm when you walk into stores and places. Not because you always wear a Jesus t-shirt everywhere you go or have uh, so many bumper stickers on your car that, you know, you, people can't see what color paint you know, car you're driving, right? People are going to know you belong to me. You're my disciples by you manifesting God's love for each other, right? John 13, 35, by this all will know that you are my disciples if you have agape love, and the Greek is fervent love, God's love for one another. Guys, loving people as you love yourself, that's Old Testament, Old Covenant love. Nothing wrong with that. It's a great way to love people. But loving people under the Old Covenant implies placing them, listen, on an equal footing with yourself. You love them as you love yourself. But loving them as Jesus loved us means to place them above yourself by dying to your needs and making their needs supreme. This is the greatest kind of love there is, God's love, sacrificial love manifested in the lives of God's people. Now, Jesus would climax this discourse uh, on this topic. He would bring it to a climax in verses 12 and 13 of John 15. He said, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. Now he said that directly after what we're calling the vine and branches discourse. And in my mind, the fruit that God is looking for, primarily, not exclusively, but primarily, is the fruit of love. See, we have to see things in their context, right? You have John 15, verses 1 to 8, talking about us bearing fruit. Climax is in verse 12 and 13. The fruit I'm talking about is love. Greater love is no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. That's the, that is the main idea. It's the main fruit that Jesus is talking about and the Father is looking for from our lives. But listen to me now. God's love is totally unselfish. It's absolutely others-centered. And the only way that kind of love will grow and flourish in our hearts, listen, is when true humility is present. When true humility is present. As we said, humility is both vertical, our relationship with God, and horizontal, our relationship with our fellow man. And guys, you can't have one without the other. They are the vertical and horizontal, they intersect. When the vertical and horizontal intersect, what does that form? The cross. And when we become true disciples of Christ, deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow Jesus, you will know true humility on the vertical and horizontal plane. They're interdependent. Now, I like what Andrew Murray said in his book, Humility, The Journey Toward Holiness. I won't read it to you. I'll just paraphrase it. Uh, you can go online tomorrow and our notes will be up there and I'll have the whole quote. But, but just to condense what Murray said, he said, look, 
People think that they're being humble toward God when they come to church and they, you know, pray to God and they're acting all humble and they bow their heads and they're kind of self-reflective and, 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 and you know, and, and they, they get kind of down on themselves sometimes. And I think that that's really manifesting humility toward God. But Murray said, really, the only way you really know if you have true humility toward God is how you act the people you come in contact with all week long. That's the real test of humility. Because if you're really humble toward God, you'll be humble toward those that God has made in his image. And the idea is we're, we're very good at deceiving ourselves. We come to church and act all pious, you know, and, and uh, we, we hear the word taught and maybe we have a little tinge of emotion, you know, and we're moved to tears maybe a little bit because, yeah, yeah, I could be doing better. And, and, and so we try to do a little self-reflection. I get that. We all do it. We should do it. But then oftentimes people will walk out the doors and all week long they're ripping people off, lying to people, cheating on their spouse. Murray says, the real test of humility is in our everyday lives, how we treat others. What we do when we come in contact with others. This is the real test of eternity, he said. Otherwise, if we're not acting humble towards people, made in the image of God, we're not really humble toward God. We're deceiving ourselves. We're deluded. And a very important lesson he said that um, Jesus taught true humility and he demonstrated it by washing the disciples' feet and many other things that he did to show his humility toward people, which was only really rooted in his humility toward his Father. Look, it's so sad that so much of the energy and work of the church is sapped away by having to deal with hurt feelings, resentments, murmurings, and retaliations among God's people against each other. Let me just say something, and I really don't feel it's uh, hyperbole or it's overblown. I thought about it. I felt like the Lord gave it to me, but I thought maybe it's not from God. Maybe I should pray about it a little more and meditate on it. And I really feel the Lord gave me this, okay? So you can bear witness or not. A lack of humility is the cause of all the problems in the body of Christ. You say, well, how is that? Let me say it again first. A lack of true humility is the root cause of all of the problems in the body of Christ. Why do I say that? Because all the problems in the church today can be traced back to a lack of spiritual fruit in God's people's lives. And what the one that leads the list or the one that might be the fruit of the Spirit is love. It's love. Why are there problems? Why do Christians retaliate against other Christians? Because they're upset with them because they did something to me. How dare they do something to me? And because I love me more than them, I'm going to retaliate. I'm going to seek revenge. Why does a Christian get involved in gossip? Because they love the person they're gossiping about? Of course not. Because they like to be part of the crowd. They like to be with the in-group. I want people to like me. Therefore, if they're gossiping about so-and-so, I'm going to gossip about them. All the problems in the body of Christ can be traced back to a lack of Christians bearing fruit. And the one that leads the list is a lack of God's love flowing through his people. Remember I said it's there, we don't have to use it? And why is that? Why is there a lack of fruit? a lack of love in the lives of God's people? I just said it. 
because of pride and self-love. Pride and self-love. I've been doing this for a long time. And every time I have counseled a married couple who is having a great deal of problems with each other, it all boiled down to two things. Pride and self-love. Whereas humility is the good soil that allows the fruit of the Spirit to grow in our lives. Listen, pride is the thorny soil that chokes out and kills the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. It's as simple as that. Instead of serving one another and esteeming others better than ourselves, the church is caught up in the pursuit of self-esteem and has embraced the misguided teaching, I have to first learn to love myself before I can love anyone else. We talked about this last week. If you weren't here, go online. Because that idea... Didn't Jesus tell us that I first have to learn to love myself before I can love others? No. He said, love others as you love yourself. And by the way, that didn't te teaching didn't come from a godly, spirit-filled Christian. and came from an atheistic, atheistic uh, psychoanalyst named Eric Fromm back in the 40s who wanted to bring Christians into his practice, and so he decided to manipulate Scripture to make Christians think that they needed to learn to love themselves first, which is what he was selling, self-esteem. And the devil used it, big time. He brought into the church a teaching that instead of focusing on God and others and myself as off to the side somewhere, he brought it all, turned it all around, and now I'm the focus. Self-esteem is the issue. And i got to spend all my time as a Christian learning to love myself more because then and only then can I love others. But in reality, the more time we spend on trying to love ourselves more is less time we're going to be spending on loving God and, of course, loving anyone else. i, I got news for you. People that spend all their time trying to love themselves more never have any time left for anybody else or a desire for that matter. They're consumed with the pursuit of self-love. I mean, this is all of Satan. And he's got his, the church all flipped around, and it's like a dog chasing his tail. He has neutralized millions of Christians because this idea that you have to learn to love yourself, look, self-love is never realized because self is never satisfied. You're always chasing that elusive goal. I can't love people right until I first learn to love myself. And we're chasing that idea of self-love, and it's just got us going in circles. And again, if Satan can get us to spend all our time trying to learn to love ourselves more, we won't have any, any time left to love anybody else, especially God, especially God. You know, Jesus taught an important lesson on this very truth. That the more we love and think highly of ourselves, the less we're going to love and appreciate God for all He does for us or has done for us, which means humility was at the heart of the lesson that He gave. Turn to Luke 7. I think this is such an important passage that we really need to read it together. 
Because Jesus taught a truth through this story, real life story, of course, that really destroys the idea of self-love and exalts the idea of selfless love, humility-based love. Well, Luke 7, verse 36, Then one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went to the Pharisee's house and sat down to eat. And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil, and stood at his feet behind him weeping. And she began to wash his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. And she kissed his feet and anointed them with fragrant oil. Now when the Pharisee, the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he spoke to himself. In other words, he reasoned in his heart. And I'll just paraphrase it, you know, if this guy was really a prophet, because I'm, the Pharisees were always trying to disprove Jesus as a prophet. This guy wanted to test him, you know, see, see if he could prove or not whether he was really a prophet. And he sees this woman washing his feet with her tears and drying them with her hair. And so the Pharisee was very proud. Arrogant people, Pharisees. Said so if this if this guy really was a prophet, he would know what kind of person who this is who was touching him. She's a really bad sinner. Verse 40, and Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. So he said, Well, teacher, say it. There was a certain creditor who had two debtors, one owed five hundred denarii and the other. 50. And when they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, Well, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, You have rightly judged. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house, and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For, for she loved much, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. Now to fully appreciate the story, you have to understand that many commentators put it back to back with Matthew 11. Where Jesus said to the crowd, if anyone is weary and heavy laden, come to me and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn of me. I am meek and lowly of heart. You'll find rest for your souls. For my burden is easy. My yoke is light. And they believe she responded, came forward and got forgiveness. Now when they went back to the Pharisee's house for lunch, it was common. If a Pharisee had a pretty well-known teacher over to his house, people would come and they'd stand outside and look in through the windows just to hear anything the teacher had to say. So here comes this woman, and the story unfolds, right? And what is the point of the story? Well, folks, very simply, it's this. The degree to which you love yourself will be the degree to which you do not love and appreciate God. The Pharisees were very proud, arrogant people. They didn't really think they needed God to forgive them for anything. They were perfect. They never sinned. And, of course, Jesus loved the Pharisees and was always trying to give them a you know, a reality check. He does it here. 
But the idea is that in what Jesus is pointing out is this woman, yeah, she was a great sinner. But God forgave her. And because she knew she was a notorious sinner. So unworthy of anything God would give to her, especially eternal life. When Jesus forgave her, she was overwhelmed with a sense of love and gratitude toward him because she didn't have an overwhelming sense of love for herself. The Pharisee did, like so many in our culture, who really think that they're pretty good people. You know, maybe not perfect, although I'm, sometimes I'm not sure about that even, but I'm a pretty good person. And I believe when I stand before God, he'll look at me and go, oh, you are a wonderful person. Come into my heaven. Come in. You, oh, come on in. I've been looking at you for years. Oh, boy, am I just overwhelmed with how good you know. Give me a break. But the point I'm making is this woman was humble. And the humility in her heart led to a great, deep, abiding love for her Savior. Where's the Pharisee? He didn't know. He was sitting there with Jesus at the table. He was an equal. She's at his feet, sobbing, thanking him for mercy. Guys, this is why self-love is so destructive and demonic. And the devil infused it into the body of Christ and has done so much damage over the years. Because the more we think highly of ourselves, the more esteem, self-esteem, we cultivate in our hearts, the less esteem and love and appreciation we'll have for God himself. Now, let me just say something, and we'll move on. And we talked a little bit about this last week. you got to go online and listen. When, when I teach, a, and I'm not alone, when any pastor who teaches God's word verse by verse, you come to think. You can't, you just, it's, you just take it as it comes, right? Nobody can accuse you as a pastor of just speaking to me. I'm sure I came to church, and I've had people say that. Did, you know, my first week, so-and-so brought me. He goes to your church. Did he call you last night, tell you I was going to come? No. Well, how come you knew exactly what I'm going through? Well, that's God. He knows. Later on in my heart, when I did this message, you know. But, you know, it's like, it, it's like God knows. And, and, and a lot of times people, they come to church and they hear a pastor having to teach on something like this. And, and I, you know, it, it's gotten really bad, as we talked about last week. You know, moralistic therapeutic deism and how that has just become the most, uh, what is it, the... Um, the, the greatest, most popular worldview in church today. What is it? I'm not going to define it enough time. Go online and listen to the message. But a lot of folks come to church with a whole different idea about what fruit is and how it applies in their lives. So when a pastor teaches on a subject like humility, I see they're yawning, looking at their watch. When's this guy going to get done? They're not interested. I can tell they are, I'm not connecting to them. So one of two things has to happen. Either I come down to their level and, and preach on man felt needs kind of things and make them happy, or I pray that God will raise them up to the level of what the scriptures are teaching. 
Because folks, only genuinely saved, spirit-filled Christians resonate with a message like this. If you're sitting there this morning thinking, oh, this is going to be my last week here. Uh, i got to find a church that's going to make me feel good. This guy's a downer. No, I, I'm not going to tell you what you want to hear, but I'll tell you what you need to hear. At the end of the day, that's the most important thing to hear. But if it's not resonating with you, if you're bored, if you're uninterested, ask yourself, well, why? Why is it not registered? It comes right out of the Bible. It's because I'm too self-focused. The problem is I'm at the center of my life, not Jesus, not others. So either you might not even be saved, or you're saved but definitely not spirit-filled. You have to... Those can be corrected. But don't leave her thinking the problem is the church that's teaching you the word. The problem is in your own heart. Get the heart right with God, right? All right, getting back to, and we'll just really introduce this and pick it up next week. Getting back to John 15 and our Vine and Branches series. Um, so far in this series, we've been working from this basic outline. First of all, point number one, the, Jesus, the true vine. Point number two, the father, the vine dresser. And we talked about that. And under that second main point, uh, the father, the vine dresser, I have a sub point, the goal of the vine dresser. The father's the vine dresser. What is his goal? Now, as we have repeatedly said in this series, the whole goal of agriculture is, again, to bring forth fruit, or else what's the point of all the hard work, right? Likewise, the whole goal of the Christian life is that we bear fruit as well. Verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. You and I are the branches, right? He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. It's interesting, guys, that vine wood, vine wood is not good for anything except for growing grapes. I mean, it doesn't burn well, so they never use it for fires. You can't make furniture out of it. Have you ever seen vine wood? They couldn't make furniture out of it. The only thing it is good for is for bearing fruit. That is the point. Let me read to you what Warren Worsby said in his book, The Five Secrets of Living. He said, and I quote, What, in who, what and whom am I? Where, why am I here? He said, You must answer these questions correctly if life is to have meaning for you. The man who calls a wrench a screwdriver and tries to use it as a screwdriver is heading for frustration and failure. The person who does not know who and what he is will experience the same kind of frustration and failure in life. It is this identity crisis that has threatened and even destroyed many people in our society today. He said, the Christian need not have an identity crisis. Jesus tells us who we are and why we are here. We are branches and he is the vine. We are here to bear fruit. Once you accept that, this simple fact, you are on your way to making your life meaningful and useful, end quote. Again, it's all about bearing fruit. We talked about that, right? All right, what is the nature of spiritual fruit? And again, I'm just going to set this up for next week. Let me start by telling, sometimes it's, it's helpful in determining what something is to first look at what it is not. Let's get the negatives out of the way, Okay some of the misconceptions that people have with regard to spiritual fruit. 
All right, what Christian fruit is not. With all the emphasis and importance that Jesus places on Christians bearing fruit, look, it makes sense to know what kind of fruit we're supposed to bear. Yes, God's love leads the list. We got that one, okay? But there's others. First, let's take a quick look at what, again, Christian fruit is not. People should not get artificial fruit confused with the real thing. Uh, first of all, true spiritual fruit is not success. It's not success. Nowhere in the Bible is Christian fruit synonymous with success as the world defines success, okay? I mean, we all have a tendency to think if a church is big or if a lot of people are coming to that church, it means that they're bearing spiritual fruit, lots of fruit. Not necessarily. Oh, but they're growing. As somebody has pointed out, even graveyards grow. Now, that doesn't mean every big church is a graveyard dead. I'm not saying that. But if you look at numbers as the bottom line criteria for figuring out if this church is bearing fruit and God's really pleased with it, numbers will mislead you. Especially in these last days when Paul the Apostle said that there's coming a time when the people of God going to church will not want to hear sound doctrine. But they will gather to themselves teachers who will tickle their ears, tell them what they want to hear, and I'm paraphrasing, those churches are going to be packed. Again, not all big churches are bad churches but they're not automatically good churches because they're big. I mean, a large, successful, quote-unquote, church or ministry could be the result of, you know, slick marketing campaign, a lot of human effort, but a church that's not necessarily bearing spiritual fruit. I think of the church of Laodicea in, in Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 to 21. Here was a church in Asia Minor back then who thought they were a great success. Why? Because they were big and they were prosperous. And, you know, they just were this, they were the model for church success and fruit bearing. And Jesus said, look, I got news for you. I, I'm not even in your church. I'm knocking at the door. Let me in. You think you're rich and in need of nothing, but I see the heart and I know that you're poor, wretched, blind, miserable, and naked. But they were completely deceived because they had a large church, probably, you know, they didn't have a building. Buildings didn't come about to the fourth century where churches, but they met in sometimes very big, exclusive homes. Conversely, guys, I have known pastors that have been pastors for 25 years or more and have faithfully pastored churches of 20 and 25 people. Faithfully. Day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year. The world looks at churches like that and a miserable failure. That great theologian, Andy Stanley, even made this statement a few years ago. Small churches dishonor God. They're an affront to God. Because God, we have to have successful churches to really rep represent and glorify Him. So all you little churches, so we said, all you little churches in the area, combine into one big church. Because you're dishonoring God by being small. Well, apparently he didn't read Revelation chapter 2 where Jesus dictated a letter to the church of Smyrna, 
a very small, struggling, persecuted church, they thought they were a failure themselves. She said, no, in my eyes, you're a great success. They were poor because they were standing up for the Lord. The men couldn't work. Because in those days, the tradesmen, they were called guildsmen, would start their day by pledging allegiance to a, to a, 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 a patron deity, Apollo or Aphrodite or Zeus. That's how they started their day, to ask the God to give blessing upon the work. Christians wouldn't do that. They wouldn't pledge allegiance to Zeus or Apollo, so they couldn't work. That's where they were struggling. That's where they were poor and persecuted. It was not because God was not with them. It was because God was with them and was giving them the grace to stand up for the Lord. I think we're going to be shocked when we get to heaven at what Christians get praise from God and what do not, what churches were really of the Holy Spirit and what churches were not and ministries. You tell me the Calvary pastors I have known who have pastored small churches, 20, 25 people for 20 years, 25 years, their failures. I like to hear what Jesus has to say to these churches, and I don't believe it's going to be your failure. I'll give you one more. We'll, I'll give you two more. We'll close quickly. Emotionalism. Emotionalism is not a spiritual fruit. Now, some churches equate emotion with the spirit. Word of faith churches do this a lot, right? And it gets a little crazy. If you've ever been to a word of faith church, I've had people come to my church and say, boy, I was at this church last week. Whoa. The pastor got up to the pulpit and just began to open in prayer, and the place went berserk. People were yelling and screaming and jumping over the pews and basically, I don't know, hanging off the chandeliers. I don't know if they really did that, but they were diving over each other, one guy told me. Because in a lot of churches, emotion is an evidence that the Spirit of God is moving. Fruit is being born. All this emotion, that's the fruit of the Spirit. But high-energy, emotionally charged services are not proof that a minister or a church is really Spirit-filled. It, it doesn't, you know, I'm not saying that when the Spirit is moving, there's not going to be any emotion. Of course there will be. I'm just saying emotion for emotion's sake is not a fruit of the Spirit. As the old saying goes, guys, it's not how high you jump, it's how straight you walk when you land. People go to these churches, they jump high, it's crazy. But how, how do they walk when the service is over? I've had couples come to me and say, you know, we were at a church like that for years and Sunday morning was like a sugar rush. Everything was designed to whip up the emotions. We'd walk out of there, we had nothing to feed on, there was no meat. So we had nothing to grow from. We, it was just, you know. So we staggered in our walk for years. Come back on Sunday, get our sugar rush for the week. All right, one more. Also, artificial fruit, phony fruit, is not obviously the fruit of the Spirit, not what the Bible talks about with regard to true spiritual fruit. It's not artificial, not phony. Anyone who goes to church, everyone who goes to church wants to look like a Spirit-filled Christian. Again, pride. All churchgoers who are not bearing real spiritual fruit, look, we're all smart enough to know how to tie on artificial phony fruit, right? 
He asked people, you know, come to, how are you doing? How's your, oh, my walk is great. Me and the Lord are so tight. You can just follow them around a little. You could be a fly in the car on the way home on the expressway or in their house throughout the week. You would see a different story. God sees the heart, right? But the idea is that we all want to come across as deeply spiritual. So we put on the mask. It's called hypocrisy. Greek word hypocrites was used if, uh, in theater of an actor playing a part. You remember the, you've seen the old theater and all where they would have a stick and a, and a face on it. And the actor would come out and hold the stick up. They were playing a part. So a lot of Christians who are holding up a spiritual facade. They're playing a part. They play it so well, some of them, they think they're bearing spiritual fruit. They start believing their own press. Real spiritual fruit is genuine and it's lasting. Verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. Listen, and that your fruit should remain. Guys, when Christians try to simulate or imitate somebody else's fruit, all they're doing is, is tying onto their lives uh, plastic, phony fruit. And it may look good from a distance. But if the whole point of fruit bearing is not for my benefit, it's for the benefit of others, which it is, my life is not going to be a blessing to anybody. Because it's like the old Western, you know, we several years ago went to uh, Universal Studios, Florida, right? And they had these sets that they film movies, right? You've all seen the Western Street. You walk down, there's the saloon, there's the, 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 uh, the livery, and it just, you know. But they take you behind, it's just a facade and just a couple of two-by-fours holding the thing up. That's a lot of Christians. It's a total facade. And, and really because there's no real fruit there, they can't bless anybody else. I'll end with that. Real Christian fruit is, and I'll just say this, before we look at what it really is, it takes time to develop real Christian fruit, doesn't it? That's why this analogy is so right on. Because when it comes to real fruit, you have to plant seeds in the ground, it takes time to water, the thing has to grow, and it takes time to bear fruit, right? The same is true when a person receives Christ. The seed of God is planted within them, they're born again, but the day after they don't have all these, all this fruit hanging off them, their life, okay? It takes time to grow fruit in your life. Just like a farmer, it takes a lot of effort, time. For the Christian, it takes time cultivating a devotional life staying in the Word, staying in fellowship with God's people, coming to church, all of that effort goes into you bringing forth spiritual fruit. Again, we need to remember that the branches uh, in the vine illustration don't bear fruit for themselves. The fruit is for others to eat, right? True grapevines or whatever. We are not producing fruit to please ourselves. We're doing it to feed and bless others. And um, one of the ways we, we bear fruit is through what we say. We, we actually feed others by the words that come out of our mouth. Yeah, the actions of our life, 
a lot of wonderful things that people do to help others in soup kitchens and different things, great. But the words of our mouth, Proverbs 10, 21, the lips of the righteous feed many. Feed many. Next time, guys, we'll look at how God's word defines spiritual fruit. I mean, since God desires our lives to produce fruit, how exactly does he define it? Not me. It doesn't matter how I define it. How does he define it? What exactly are the things that God himself calls the spiritual fruit he is looking for in the lives of his children? Well, come on back next week and we'll look at some of that and continue our series. So, Father, we thank you. Lord, we thank you for your word, which guides us through these issues, teaches us many important truths that we need to apply into our lives. Give us grace to do that. And Lord, we ask that you would continue to bless these studies in your word, and in particular, this series on us bearing fruit, because it is, the, it is the Christian life in a nutshell. Give us grace to do that, Lord, and to learn all that's involved. We thank you, Lord. We ask all this now in Jesus' precious name. Amen.